Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello everyone, welcome back to the History of England to episode 60, or episode 3.1, the first in series 3 all about the Plantagenets. Series 3, I have to tell you, is a bit of a whopper, close to 200 years in 75 episodes, 1217-ish to 1399. It starts with the monarchy in chaos, and actually will end with the monarchy in chaos, with the usurpation of the throne by the Lancastrian Henry Bolingbroke, which you might were you so inclined, see as the countdown to the Wars of the Roses. Very crudely, then, you might think of the Plantagenets as the process by which the French monarchy became English. I mean, that is a crude generalisation, because Gascony will not be lost until 1453. We have Henry V and the last gasp of the Hundred Years' War in the next series, Series 4. And, of course, the Plantagenets will remain deeply involved in France throughout the Hundred Years' War. But... The loss of Normandy under John created a very English aristocracy, despite the stubborn survival of French in public life. And Henry V will communicate very much on the basis of an English king appealing to English sentiment. However, this series starts with the heroic figure of William Marshall, very much a survivor of the old Anglo-Norman world acting as a midwife to the new. Henry III rules for a long 54 years, and as an individual is very much unknown and unregarded, which, to be honest, isn't really that unfair. But his reign is massively significant, largely because it sees the emergence of an English parliament and the rebellion of Simon de Montfort. And all of that is a great story, ending in a grisly present being sent to Maud Mortimer in the marches by Henry's all-conquering son, Edward I. The following reign of Edward I is another long and significant one, which seems that sees the growing importance of Parliament and the start of Britain, with the de facto union of England and Wales, although legally that doesn't happen, of course, until the 16th century. 
And of course, there's Wallace and Bruce and the Scottish Wars, although those aren't resolved until the reign of Edward's son, who loved hedging and ditching far more than empire building. Edward II's reign is also significant for the invention of that concept of the two bodies of the monarch, the physical and the conceptual. The idea that you can be loyal to the monarchy, but not to its current incumbent. There is a sort of strange flip-flopping during this series in the characters of the monarch. The rather ineffectual Henry III, followed by the powerful Edward I, the super ineffectual Edward II, and then the glamorous Edward III, followed by the fairly catastrophic Richard II. It's kind of feast or famine. Edward III, then, seems to be the very model of the medieval king. Warlike, glorying in the romance of courtly love, at the head of an assembly of accomplished figures, Philippa of Hainault, Henry of Gromont, the Black Prince, the Tales of Froissart. And the story of Edward III is the most exquisite tragedy, from the glories and triumphs of Cressy and Poitiers to an enfeebled, confused, sunless, helpless, dying king, having the rings torn from his fingers by Alice Perez. Edward III, of course, was goaded into war by a French monarchy desperate to gain control of Gascony, and so the series is set against the backdrop of the Hundred Years' War, but it is also set against the backdrop of the most extraordinary social and economic history. So the 13th century was a story of growing wealth, social and economic stability, and a growing population. But that happy story holds within it the seeds of destruction as the capacity of the inflexible medieval economy to support Europe's growing population is stretched and stretched and stretched to the point where in 1315 it breaks with the Great Famine. And then in 1348 it is shattered in the maelstrom that is the Black Death. Thus the 14th century is called the Calamitous Century. It is the most extraordinary story, as is the new economy that emerges from it. That all brings us to the extraordinary events of the Peasants' Revolt in 1381 and the would-be tyrant Richard II. So that is what you have ahead of you in this series. I hope you have fun. The Plantagenets are a lot of fun. We start then with the reign of one of England's most ignored monarchs, as I say, Henry III. Really finding material on this chap is quite a struggle, but reasonably recently he's been written about by one of the most enjoyable historians I have ever read, actually, David Carpenter. So, my guide over the next century or so will be David Carpenter, and also a chap called Michael Prestwich, who wrote a slightly dry textbook, it has to be admitted, called Plantagenet England, and then a few other historians along the way. There really isn't a massive historiological debate about this man, or at least certainly not in the way we were able to have with John. There's plenty about his most famous subject, Simon de Montfort, which we'll come to, but not really about his supposed master. So, let me turn to my two trusty main sources. Firstly, the Ladybird Book of the Kings and Queens of England. This says, He was pious and vain, and the people hated and despised him. Okay. I think we know where that's coming from. Then, Seller and Yeatman in 1066 and all that? Well, to be honest, they're no more complimentary. Henry is described in the heading as the nondescript king. And here we go. Henry was a confused kind of king and is only memorable for having seized all the money in the mint, imprisoned himself in the Tower of London and finally flung himself into the bosom of the Pope. 
To be honest, this does seem to be the consensus, with very few voices indeed raised against it. In fact, I haven't heard one. Basically, Henry seems to have been a bit of a dead loss. Okay, he built a nice cathedral at Westminster. He had a mega butch son. But really, that's about it. But even if he is a bit of a dork in the main, his reign is hugely significant in the development of England's constitutional monarchy. And in the rebellion of Simon de Montfort, it has a quite extraordinary story and the first tantalising whiff of social radicalism. Anyway, we'll see what you think as we go. And, just for a fun fact... Henry is one of only five English monarchs who rule for over 50 years. Anyone who can name the other four, pop a comment up on the website or Facebook. There will be no prizes, just the enormous kudos and fame that comes from being a History of England prize winner. We like to start Reigns Now with a bit of a chat about the chroniclers that we're going to deal with, do we not? Although in this case, I think we've already talked about some of them at the start of John's reign. The most famous school of monastic history at the time was at St Albans, just north of London. And in our coming period, we have two chroniclers from there up to 1259, Roger of Wendover and Matthew Paris. And then later, there are others. Roger and Matthew wrote Flowers of History, about which we've been extremely suspect when it was talking about John. But although Matthew in particular is well capable of a bit of embroidery, they come into their own from 1216. As far as their attitudes are concerned, they're very proud of their abbey and their traditions. They're rather contemptuous of newfangled institutions like friars, and generally they support the lay aristocracy against the royal court. They are not fans of the Pope. Paris, by the way, was also a lovely illustrator, and I've posted as many images as I could find onto the website. They're really good, it's really worth a look. I don't want to annoy anybody, particularly Arabella, who's hopefully still listening, but I've never found formal medieval religious art very interesting, to be honest. But Matthew's drawings are full of life and wit. So, go and have a look. Then there's a monk called Bartholomew Cotton, a monk of Norwich, who had similar sympathies to Paris and Wendover. He's the chap who, when recording the death of Simon de Montfort, slipped in the word alas, which gave an idea of where his sympathies lay. On the other hand, we have a couple of chroniclers from Osney and Oxford who are much more royalist in tone. And there's some more we get of the Barnwell Chronicler near Cambridge, who we've mentioned with John also, and he's a balanced, perceptive kind of observer. Henry was the first child king since Ethelred. This is not an auspicious comparison, and not an auspicious way to start a reign when you're nine years old and have a grown-up competitor in your kingdom controlling more than half of it. Traditionally, minorities or disputed successions are times of danger in medieval times, so it wasn't great that Henry was only born in 1207, and if he followed the standard of the nobility of the day, he'd come into his majority when he was 21 in 1228. But it's important to note, no one really knows what to do. There's no rule book about how to deal with a minority, and they all had to make it up a bit as they went along. Now, since 1213, England, of course, was a fief of the Pope. So the lad Henry's coronation took place under the supervision of Guala, the papal legate, on the 28th of October 1216. It took place at Gloucester in the southwest, the Archbishop of Canterbury being away arguing with said Pope, and London being held by the rebels. So Henry did homage to Guala for England and took the cross. Now he took the cross on the basis that he'd then have some of the protections afforded to crusaders. Though, to be honest, I don't think his antagonist, Louis, took a blind bit of notice. 
Pope Honorius gave Guala full power to do whatever was needed to help Henry win and keep the grubby papal mitts on his belongings. And the support of the papacy, it has to be said, would be absolutely crucial to Henry over the next few years. Now John had realised that leaving a young son was something of a hospital pass. So he'd appointed 13 executors to his will and begged them to give William the Marshal the regency. The only possible alternative to this was Ralph, Earl of Chester, as faithful to the Angevins as William had been, and controlling even more land. But Ralph was happy enough to concede the role to the Marshal, and William was careful not to take on the role until Ralph had agreed. So, as you'd expect from this model of chivalry, William the Marshal made great play of his loyalty to the young king, saying that he'd carry him on his shoulders across the land, if necessary, to win his kingdom, and declaring, I will never desert him, even if I have to beg my bread. But our William was a canny old bird, old because he was now 69, canny because he was always careful to use great counsels and consultation to rule by general will and broaden his support. And of course he wasn't really a bird. The military situation the young king faced was pretty grim. 97 holders of major baronies were in revolt and only 36 were loyal to him. Of the 27 greatest barons, only 8 were loyal. His opponent, Louis, son of the King of France and leader of the rebels, controlled London and the eastern half of England all the way up to the northern border and was allied with Llewellyn, Prince of Wales, and Alexander, the King of Scotland. As he sat there in the west of England, Henry could reflect that he did have some advantages. He held all the ecclesiastical support thanks to the Pope. And this was one of the reasons, actually, that Louis was never crowned. There was simply nobody there to do it. Llewellyn would be an effective threat, but in fact was never able to move out of Wales, held in place by William the Marshal and Chester's lands in the marches. And then throughout England, a large number of royal castles were still held by royal castellans, including, crucially, Dover, held by Hubert de Burgh and the Cinque Ports. This made Louis' communication with France very fragile. It's probably also worth introducing Folk de Breuté at this point. Breuté is a bit of a beast of a word unless you're French, so it's going to be folk from now on. I'll start off by using folk as an example of one of the royal castellans and sheriffs that held these castles. Folk was referred to as being of common stock, which of course was not a recommendation at the time. He was in fact the illegitimate son of a Norman knight, and his name came from the folks, the Latin word for a scythe, because a scythe was the weapon the folks had used to kill a Norman knight in his father's meadow when he was young. Ah, the happy days of youth. Even by the standards of the day, he was considered a bit of a shorty, but more than made up for it in vigour and attitude. Folk had been a long and loyal supporter of the king, sent to Poitiers in 1206. His fierce support for the king made him a hated figure on the baronial side, though oddly enough he wasn't one of the aliens cited in the charter as needing to be thrown out. One more interesting fact. When Folk married, his wife's house in London was called Folk's Hall. Over time, this becomes corrupted to Vauxhall, which of course is now the name of that area of London. And of course, for the Brits amongst you, the car company Vauxhall take their name from there. But did you also know that they continue to use Folk's symbol, the griffin? Well, if you didn't, you do now. I should also introduce you to another of the dramatis personae that you'll hear more about, 
Peter de Roche, the Bishop of Winchester. Peter had become Lord Chamberlain under Richard I and stuck by John all the way through. He'd briefly been made Justicia in 1213, but was replaced by Hubert de Burgh in 1215. Hubert was therefore essentially anything but his best buddy, as we'll see some years in the future. So you'll hear more about Peter. So, William the Marshal faced a dodgy strategic situation. His first moves were diplomatic. He called a great council a magnum concilium in Bristol, showing everyone that he would rule by consent and consultation. He tried to see who he could entice back to his side from the barons by offering an amnesty and their land back, but which, unfortunately, had limited success. Now, Henry was a blameless boy, of course, and William played on this for all he was worth. He issued a royal letter where Henry made this very point, slightly disingenuously. We hear that a quarrel arose between our father and certain nobles of our kingdom. We wish to remove it for ever, since it has nothing to do with us. Finally, the biggest play of all was Magna Carta. From Bristol, William and Guala reissued the charter in a new form in 1217. It tried to strike a balance between a state which belonged entirely to the king and a state which was run, in their words, for the common utility of all. This, of course, is a pretty radical concept at the time, a new basis for monarchy. As I think we said last week, the death of John was crucial to the success of Magna Carta. John would have had little truck with the idea of common utility. Common utility? I don't think so. In the short term, this diplomatic offensive made absolutely zip difference. Rien de nada. And in the first four months of the war, things really don't look good for the young king. Between November 1216 and February 1217, the rebels definitely have the advantage. They all swore not to accept any heir of John. They took Hereford in the west, and therefore close to the royalist power base. The poor old marshal had absolutely no money, and also he had no way of raising more. Partly because he only controlled part of the country, and partly because when he did declare a tax, no one paid up and few tried to even collect it. Meanwhile, he was militarily threatened from the west by Llewellyn and from the east by the rebels. Basically, in this civil war, there was little incentive to change sides. Each leader had won support by offering land to his supporters, so often opposing lords on each side were essentially fighting over the same pieces of land. So, if you did change side, your new leader couldn't give you any great reward because they'd already offered all the land out anyway. This civil war, like the anarchy, is as much as a series of local family struggles over land as much as a national struggle. And this is a constant problem for the marshal. Not only does he have no way of raising money, he has no access to the patronage that was the basic engine of medieval rule. In consequence, the marshal spent four months desperately buying a series of truces with concessions of the odd castle here or there, which was nice for Louis, of course, but you have to ask why he didn't move in for the kill. And actually, the truth was that Louis also didn't have enough men, especially in this age of castle warfare, where so many royal castles were still held against him and just sucked up money and materiel to have to reduce each one. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? 
United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. And so in February 1217, Louis nipped back to France trying to get more men together. And while he was gone, the wheel of fortune finally began to turn, with two key defections from Louis's camp. One, William Longsword, the Earl of Salisbury. And then, William Marshall's own son, William Jr. With them came a large number of lesser men, mainly in the south and west of England. Let's not get excited. This is just the tip of the proverbial iceberg, or maybe just the tip of the crenellation on the castle. But there were a couple of reasons why things might be changing. One of these was the strength of papal support for Henry. But the Dunstable Chronicler gave another reason. The French became arrogant, repulsed the nobles of England from their councils, began to call them traitors, and retained their castles which they took for themselves, and did not restore their rights to the English. French arrogance. Surely not. Incroyable. Another chronicler made pretty much the same point, saying that these men defected, quote, preferring to have a king from their own land than from a foreign. William was bright enough to play on these feelings, so the instructions he gave in raising a scutage tax in 1217 gave the reason as to deliver England from the French. So, in small part, there are signs of patriotism and nationalism, though, of course, we're not allowed to use the nationalist word until the 19th century. However, as I say, don't get too excited yet. The vast number of rebels stayed loyal to Louis. Louis arrived back in England in April 1217 with a small but effective force. He split his forces. He himself attacked southwest from his base in London and drove William the Marshal from Winchester, allowing Louis to continue the siege of the castle. Another of his forces went north and drove a royalist force away from a castle called Mount Sorrel, just a few short miles away from where I was brought up, incidentally, and went on to besiege Lincoln in the northeast. Lincoln was held for the king unusually by a female castellan called Nicola de la Haye. The Civil War was essentially won in two battles, the Battle of Lincoln and the Naval Battle of Sandwich. The Marshal basically adopted the classic strategy to unite his forces against a divided opponent and therefore achieve overwhelming force at a specific point. The Marshal marched north from Winchester, abandoning it to its fate, and united with the forces that had been driven away from Mount Sorrel on his way to Lincoln. When they arrived there on the 20th of May 1217, the rebels had already overcome the town walls and captured the town itself and were now besieging the castle. You'll have heard from me enough now that pitched battles in medieval times were rare, and when the marshal arrived outside Lincoln to offer battle, the inevitable happened. The rebels, commanded by the Count of Persh, retreated inside the town walls and set to wait for reinforcements. Robert Fitzwalter, the leader of the old Army of God, was there as well. So, we have a sort of medieval sandwich. Royalists in the castle, rebels in the town, royalists outside the town. But the grizzled marshal was having none of this sitting around stuff. Peter de Roche, the Bishop of Winchester, took it on himself to court personal disaster by carrying out a reconnaissance of the town. He came back and reckoned there was a blocked-up gate that could be reopened. 
yet more evidence of the less than entirely peaceful approach to the churchman's role in medieval times. Do you remember Bishop Odo of Bayer in the tapestry wielding his club at Hastings? Anyway, this doorway was indeed the key. So, the larger part of the army under the Earl of Chester attacked the North Gate. Folk broke through to the Royalist-held castle and gave the rebels some grief with his crossbowmen and then sallied out into the besieging rebels. It started a little poorly, it has to be said, when Folk was almost immediately captured, but before long he'd been freed and the rebels were being pushed back southward to the lower town. And at this point the old marshal burst through the block gate. He arrived with such force that he charged three ranks deep into the press of men. But the rebels weren't beaten yet, and the Count of Perche stood his ground in front of the cathedral until he was stabbed through the eye holes of his visor. Ouch. Interestingly, the Count of Perche is the only major name to die, and everyone was really jolly sorry about it, which just goes to re-emphasise the aristocratic attitude that killing oiks is fine, but killing men of breeding is really not quite the thing. But there were lots of rebel names who were captured for ransom, Robert Fitzwalter amongst them. Hands up, who's ever heard of the Battle of Lincoln in 1217? It's pretty much completely forgotten by all but the most nerdy of historians outside the fair city of Lincoln itself, and in fact, inside the fair city of Lincoln itself. But it's this battle that basically meant that England would be ruled by a Plantagenet rather than a Capetian king. Did I mention, by the way, that the French monarchy is called the Capetian monarchy? I'm not sure I have. Their original founder was a chap called Hugh Capet. When the French finally got round to having a revolution 150 years after the English, Louis XVI was executed not as King Louis XVI, but as simple Louis Capet. After this piece of stunningly decisive action, Marshall went into dithering mode. But as it happens, it didn't really matter, because Louis was preparing to give up. The negotiations went ahead at London in June. Louis appears to be a reasonably good egg who refused to abandon his supporters and for this reason the negotiations failed. The papal legate insisted that the churchman who had supported Louis be excluded from the general amnesty. And Louis wouldn't have it. This incidentally included Simon Langton, Stephen Langton's brother. And also Louis had one more card, although his English supporters were now leaving in droves and he was virtually confined to London, his wife, the redoubtable Blanche of Castile, had been busy recruiting more troops in France. In August, the French fleet was at hand off the south-east coast of England, led by its commander, Eustace the Monk. Out sailed Hubert de Burgh from the port of Sandwich to take them on. To the delight of the watching French, the English fleets seemed to be simply running away, passing in front of the French and heading for open sea. The French cried, the heart, the heart, basically mocking the English for running away like deer. Though personally, if I'd have been there, I think I could have thought of something a bit more cutting than, oh, you look like a deer. But they celebrated too soon anyway, oh yes. The English had gained the weather gauge, as I know from my Patrick O'Brien, and the wind was behind them and they could manoeuvre. They turned and attacked. Interestingly, when they attacked Eustace's flagship, they threw great pots of pulverised lime so that a big cloud of dust covered everything and the French could see nothing but white. The result of Sandwich was a great naval victory for the English, not to be their last over the French. By the 26th of August, Louis had heard of the defeat of his last hope and sued for peace. And by the end of September, he was back in France. The deal at the Treaty of Lambeth was that Louis was given 10,000 marks to go away. 
The rebels would all be forgiven and given their land back and Magna Carta would remain in place, though the churchmen who supported Louis were not so leniently treated. The war was a bit of a hitch. Louis had to appear in front of the papal legate to be absolved. He was ordered to appear only in his woollen underwear, which sounds a little kinky in fact. Louis not unreasonably refused. In Louis's place, I would have done the same. The thought of being absolved in nothing but my strainers, even if supported by a string vest, is not one I would be prepared to countenance, just in case anyone out there is thinking of absolving me. In the end, Louis was allowed to wear a cloak as well, giving a new angle on the expression all fur coat and no knickers. All that Louis, he's all cloak and no woolen underwear. Anyway, that was the end of Louis, and off home he went. After the party was over, though, the hangover started. At the end of the last civil war, Henry II had taken control straight away and forced the barons to his will. Now the key to re-establishing royal authority was the king's local agents, the sheriffs. And here it turned out that the marshal faced a problem more with his own side than with the rebels. The war had been won because although Louis had more supporters, the kings, sheriffs and castellans had remained loyal and maintained themselves independently. Let's take Falk as an example. Sitting in his caput or head castle of Bedford, he'd controlled a massive area of Middle England, Oxfordshire, Northamptonshire, Buckinghamshire, Bedfordshire and Cambridge. During the war, he'd raided and ruled at will, turning up at the door of the Abbot of St Albans at one point, for example, and extracting 500 marks for the defence of the realm. He collected the sheriff's dues and used the money to fight for the king, but when the war was won, Falk found he liked his life this way, and in common with many sheriffs, was reluctant to start paying all that money into the exchequer instead. Why not just cut out the middleman? For the rest of the Marshal's regency, England teetered on the edge of anarchy. The Marshal and his followers were committed to re-establishing the rights of the King, but they faced a legion of problems. They had no money, because few of the sheriffs would pay up. Even the ones who were in principle prepared to pay up often found themselves unable to enforce their will locally, until they couldn't pay up. Meanwhile, Magna Carta itself contributed to the pain. Gone were the heady days when the king could rock up and charge 10,000 marks as a relief. Now, £100 was the limit. Meanwhile, there was a ruckus all over the kingdom about sorting out who owned what. Many of the king's supporters refused to give back land to the rebels, and you can understand their point of view. And the king's justices were unable to force them to do so. So, men like Philip Oldcoats in Northumberland and the Count of O'Marle were essentially on the verge of open defiance. Falk was actually probably rather better, in the sense that he used his power to recover lands from the crown, but in the process feathered his own nest, seizing lands in dispute, making rebels pay extortionate fines to him to recover their lands and refusing to obey verdicts that went against him that he didn't like. In the annals, he was described as Prusquam Rex in Anglia, more than the king in England. The marshal was forced to tread softly and yield a velvet hand inside his velvet glove. Meanwhile, many of the king's men in the central government were also rather compromised. They themselves were reluctant to give up land they held to the rebels. And there was plenty of opportunity for conflict between the crown and its subjects over the royal forests. The Forest Charter had been more than a bit woolly about the extent of the royal forests, with the phrase that it should be no bigger than it was under Henry II. Well, did that mean at the start of the reign, after Stephen had lost control of parts of it, or at the end of the reign, when Henry had got them back? 
All over the country there were disputes, as barons tried to claim that land should no longer be designated as royal forest. And to capital, in many cases, the regency was unable to make permanent decisions on land grants. Here's the thing about that. The rule was that no permanent concessions of the king's rights or lands could be made until the king achieved his majority. It was part of the protecting the rights of the king gig. So again, the regency's power of patronage was limited, as was its ability to rule conclusively on many of the disputes. This powerlessness applied also to the great Llewellyn in Wales. In March 1218, the Treaty of Worcester basically confirmed his control of the other Welsh kingdoms and southern marches. William tried to find solace in the fact that Llewellyn had negotiated. He had actually come to Worcester. He confirmed his homage to the English king, but basically it was a humiliation for the English. Not that William achieved nothing in his short regency. He consistently used the great council of the barons to achieve consensus, at least in principle, and established the legitimacy of the regency. He had some piecemeal successes, for example forcibly removing the Castellan of Newark. And most importantly, he restarted the heirs, the circuits of the royal justices. For some time, royal justices would find it difficult to actually enforce judgments against major barons, but they were at least back in business. By 1219, the marshal was a sick man, and turning his mind to the matter of the succession when he popped his clogs. In March, the king and his nobles came to the marshal's residence at Caversham, just north of Reading and about 40 miles west of London and they gathered around the marshal's bed for a council. Also there was a... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market man called Pandolf, who was the new papal legate replacing Guala. The regent's proposal was that a replacement should be found for him as master and guardian of both the king and the kingdom. The men standing there knew there were three candidates for this, Pandolf as the papal legate, Hubert de Burr, the justicia, and Peter de Roche, the Bishop of Winchester. Peter, an ambitious man, protested. He was the king's tutor and claimed that he had been entrusted with his guardianship. His objection meant that no firm answer had been found by the time the marshal died, and a dangerous power struggle was in the offing. The marshal died in May. He had entrusted Henry to God and the Pope and advised him not to follow in the footsteps, in his words, of a certain criminal ancestor, which pretty clearly meant John. He died true to himself and the way he'd lived his life. When pressed to make reparation for his sins by his clerk, he declared, Listen, the clerks are too hard on us. I've taken over 500 knights and appropriated their arms, horses and equipment. If for that reason I'm forbidden the kingdom of God, there is nothing I can do, for I cannot return what I've taken. I can do no more than present myself to God, repenting of all my faults. But the argument of the clerks must be false, or else nobody would be saved. That's imagining that everybody else had taken 500 knights and all their arms and equipment. But anyway, after he died... His funeral cortege was conducted from Caversham to London to the Temple Church in London, where you can still see his effigy. All sides gave recognition to his essential integrity, with the cortege accompanied by both loyalists and former rebels. 
William had done much to restore the monarchy, quite apart from chucking out Louis, but he also left massive problems to his successors. Anyway, we say goodbye to the Marshal with some regret. Our podcast will be the poorer for his passing. By the end of June 1219, the question of who exactly would succeed him had been kind of sorted out. Kind of, because it wasn't going to last long. The concept of a triumvirate had been given a bad name by Caesar, Pompey and Crassus, not to mention Octavian, Antony and Lepidus. The triumvirate of Hubert de Burgh, Peter de Roche and Pandolf the Papal Legate is possibly slightly less famous. But it was to be just as short-lived, if ending in slightly less of a bun fight. The decision was taken at three meetings of the Magnum Concilium, which itself is notable. These decisions were taken openly and reinforced the authority of that great council. But the only real question was who would come out on top of the triumviri. So I think we'll leave it there for a week. Thanks for listening, everybody. For your comments and your reviews, have a great week and good luck 